Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I bet you didn't expect that uh, to begin the message. Do you remember those words from a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 139? A beautiful psalm that talks about God's perfect creation and knowledge of us, but in spite of knowing everything about us, He treats us with love and compassion and tenderly. The words that I just read that are on the screen seem out of place, but they are firmly embedded in Psalm 139. And frankly... I don't know about for you, but these verses can be at times a bit troublesome for me. And I imagine for you too, unless you understand their place and purpose in Scripture. They're part of a, they're a portion of, of a body of Psalms known as the imprecatory Psalms. An imprecation is a call for a curse. I call down a curse on this person or that person. It's a call for a curse. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Now, this is not one of those verses that you need to spend a great deal of time in study to see exactly what it is that David is saying. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. We, we recognize clearly what he's saying. But some explanation, explanation is needed, though, in order to determine why these verses are in the Bible in the first place. I mean, why is it even here? I mean, in, in light of the New Testament, in light of what Jesus has done for us, is this really what... We should be reading and affirming. We're going to discover this morning that these types of requests, which are seen in the New Testament as well as in the Psalms, cannot be treated as out of step with the rest of the Old Testament or as a lower form of morality that needs to be explained away by the writer having a bad day. C.S. Lewis almost does that in his book on the Psalms. i, I Lewis thinks philosophically first and theologically second. So some of the things that you've heard from Lewis, like the different four loves, not necessarily the best theology. But a great, great writer, a great man, a great Christian, great thinker. But these psalms are not a lower form of morality like, well, David, just he just didn't know any better. They have their exact purpose in place in God's plan and in His communication to us. They also speak loudly to our need to cling to the Savior and also to be serious and to sense the urgency to make the Savior known to our family, friends, and acquaintances. Our text for this morning is Psalm 10. It's representative of the imprecatory Psalms. But you'll also find a good bit of the Psalms of Lament that we covered several weeks ago uh, in in our peek at the Psalms this summer. So would you please stand as we read God's Word together. We will read Psalm 10. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall meet, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear or from, from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen the heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we understand the cry of the psalmist when he cries out as having been mistreated and undone by those who care nothing about you. God, we understand also that you are a God who sees everything and you don't take lightly the ways that we treat one another. And Father, um, there is such a difference as we will see today in the way that those who have been washed in the blood respond to one another and those who have not. And Father, our heart of love and compassion goes out for those that don't know Jesus. But remind us through your word today of your righteous anger. Righteous anger. Don't know, Father, if we're too acquainted with righteous anger, most of us. But Lord, you, in this judicial way, not emotional feelings as we get involved, but in, 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 in a righteous, a purely perfect and righteous way, you judge sin and sinners. So bring to our hearts this morning the urgency that we need to see your holiness and the need of those all around us to yield to Jesus, to repent of sins and trust Jesus' payment for those sins that, that stands in the way of your wrath. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. I, I started to preach the sermon in the prayer. Do you believe that that God exists? 
course you do. I certainly assume that you do. You're here this morning at church, and I I realize there may be some level of doubt in some of your hearts and minds, but I think that most of us would say, yes, we believe that God exists. One of the primary reasons that's given for disbelief in God, if if you will, disbelief in God, is the, the, the amount of, uh, of rampant injustice in the world today. I mean, those who are ungodly and unrighteous take advantage of sincere, well-meaning people. I just read about yesterday in, in the paper, one of those scams, you know, that, 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 that is a legitimate scam where people call you and get your information saying you're going to go to jail if you didn't show up for jury duty. You know, so many of those because you didn't show up for jury duty and give me your information. And and people not wanting, as the author said of the article, not wanting to be cuffed, gladly give that information. No, 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 no. No, no, there was a misunderstanding. Here's my social security number. Here's that, this and that. And and you've been taken. When that happens, and, and it's frustrating, and, and that's just, that's a minor thing compared to the injustices going on in the Sudan. And it places around the world. We look at all, and, and, and in our own country too. I'm not, don't mean to say that we're, we've got it all together here in America. No, and lots of injustice in this country. And people say, how can there be a God? Because of the resources that we richly enjoy in this country, and particularly in this church, we rarely find ourselves at the absolute mercy of a power hungry tyrant. But sooner or later, later, someone takes advantage of us and we're outraged. It's one of the reasons that Bernie Madoff will most all, all but certainly die in North Carolina. He'll never again see the outside of a prison unless he's being transferred from one prison to another. He was a swindler with a pleasant demeanor which infuriates people all the more. I trusted you! And how could you do this to me? You've ruined my life. And when the day comes when we have been brutally mistreated and used by someone else, we understand the painful cry of the psalmist, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble, O Lord? There is without question a visible arrogance in those who live only for themselves, and especially those who live for themselves at the expense of others. You know, it's one thing to take it easy and to enjoy life and not really worry about uh, anybody else. But when you start making other people pay for your pleasure, then there's an arrogance that's there. And often there is a game with the conscience, living as if there is no God at all. Indeed, it seems to those of us who believe in God that that He has turned His attention away from the oppressor. God has turned His back. And we say, why, O Lord, do you hide yourself? No wonder the tyrant thinks that he will always be able to enjoy this ride that he's on, paid for by others. And then emboldened, By his success, the evil one devises more and more ways to devour his prey. He is deceitful, yet quite aggressive, and in fact, ruthless. Even though he lives as if there is no God, his mind constantly wanders to the heaven. But he convinces himself, well, apparently God must not be displeased with this because he's letting me get away with it. Or he's just never going to call me to a counter. Or must be no God because I'm doing this and... Looks like all is well. 
In Ecclesiastes, it comes to my mind, because judgment is not speedily executed, the heart of man is set to continually do evil. It's something along those lines. Because God doesn't bring judgment now, we're emboldened when we are living in sin, and we go on and on and on. That's what's happening in Psalm 10. It's too much for the one who cares about righteousness, both God's righteousness and right living here on earth. And a cry arises from deep within the heart of the psalmist, imploring God to act. Arise, O Lord! O God, lift up your hand! Forget not the afflicted! Do something about this, God! It's interesting that the psalmist doesn't agree with his arrogant oppressor. He very much believes that God sees And he says, God, you see this, now do something about it. I know who you are, and this is not what pleases you. He cries out for justice. And he knows that God cares deeply about those who are being persecuted and oppressed. Therefore, he calls for God to break the arm or the power of the wicked. The psalmist then in verses 16 to 18 expresses confidence that God is in charge and will ultimately do what is right. So what are we going to do for this call for a curse on the wicked? We've already acknowledged that we live in a day when Jesus has died for sins and, and, and we recognize that every single one of us is a desperate sinner, a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. Without His grace, all of us have the same fate awaiting us, condemnation. So how, how is it that we can call down a curse of others. Are we going to ask God to break their arms if they mistreat us? Furthermore, what are we going to do with, with passages like Romans twelve fourteen to 21? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The psalmist said, break his arm. We're told, bless him and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's tough for us, isn't it? It is for me. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me just stop and say, he's talking about persecution from without. There's different ways that we respond with one another, and we'll come to some of that today. But he's talking about those who are, who, are, who are not Christian and who mock you and ridicule you. And so much of persecution in the first three centuries when people died, a lot of people died, but so much of the persecution was verbal. It wasn't. It wasn't that everybody was put to death, you know, who named the name of Christ. It was, it was discriminatory at, at work and, and verbal. And you get that kind of abuse now. You get it. And he's saying, look... 
let the Lord take care of this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, verse 30. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it would be easy to explain all of this away if we could simply say that a desire by the righteous and the oppressed for retribution on the wicked is an Old Testament kind of thing, and mercy and forgiveness and all of that is a New Testament kind of thing. And it's a New Testament way to think and live. But both the spirit of patient endurance of evil that comes against you, and including the spirit of forgiveness, and... The call for justice are found in New Testament and Old Testament alike. Both themes are all the way through. In fact, the truth of vengeance belonging to the Lord is taken from Deuteronomy 32-35. comes from the law. Feeding your enemy when he is hungry and heaping burning coals on his head is quoted from Proverbs 25, 21-22. The burning coals can mean one of two things, which... Sounds very much alike. But the first is that it's most likely what you've heard is heaping burning coals on someone's head means that it was a custom where if your neighbor's fire had gone out, they might come over and burn, borrow some burning coals and you would take them over and that way you could get your fire started. And that's the end of it. Just be nice to them no matter what. But burning coals in, in Scripture is almost always, in the Old Testament, almost always associated with judgment. And so... He's saying that God will bring judgment on people through your kindness. But there is judgment for those who persecute you. And when you're kind, that's a part of the way that God judges them and their conscience, smiting their conscience. Either way, we're told to do good to those who do bad to us, both in the the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, before we try to bring all of this together... With with an urgent application for our lives, we need to consider three things about the imprecatory psalms. And if you have something to write with, you might want to write these down because this 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 is instructive for all of these places where you see these verses that don't make sense to you necessarily. First of all, these calls for judgment are prayers. They're not a declaration of intent. Well, I'm just going to go break his arm. No, it's laying, Lord, you break his arm, which may not seem much different to you, but we'll, it'll all begin to come together. They were, in essence, a commitment of the problem to the Lord. For us, it's far better to love our enemies, as Jesus taught us, and to let God take care of someone who has wronged us. Second, the imprecatory Psalms express a holy, moral, indignation. There's jealousy for God's name here. Psalm 919, Psalm 83, 16 to 18, and Psalm 139, 21 to 22, all reveal the zeal of the writer for justice and for God's name to be vindicated among those who have arrogantly lived as if there is no God, as we've read about this morning in Psalm 10. And then third, last of all, these Psalms express a realism of what God has revealed of His certain and absolute judgment of the wicked, which would ultimately be anyone without Jesus. Judgment is absolutely certain. 
I was reading the other day how many millions in, in, in the next 20 years, how many millions of people are going to be living that are 100 years old. I mean, we delay judgment. We're, we're getting more and more successful at delaying judgment. But judgment is coming on all those who do not know Jesus. And these Psalms remind us of that. But that may be the very place that gives us the most trouble, or the very thing that gives us the most trouble. I mean, deep down, I don't like to, and I would suspect that many of you are, are like this. Some not. That's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm better than you or vice versa. But I don't like to think about people being judged. I mean, even people that have been mean to me. I don't want them, I don't want God's judgment to come down on them like this. I want God to be merciful. It would suit me fine if everybody in the end were saved. And, and, and in fact, it suits some people so well that they find that in Scripture. They find that, they say, you know, in the end it's going to all be all right. These verses remind us that it's not going to all be all right. God expresses a righteous anger against sin and sinners. Our only hope of standing in His presence is for Jesus' righteousness to be imputed or credited to us. We come to basis, come to heaven not on the basis of our own goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' goodness, which, by the way, is why He is pleased with you today. Though you are struggling with a sin that you just absolutely don't think, is, you feel like there's no hope. And you say, God must despise me, He must hate me. God loves you because when He sees you, He sees Jesus, if you belong to the Lord. If Jesus is your Savior, and Jesus is your only hope of getting victory over that sin, and, and that sin becoming a thing of the past. So that's our only hope when we stand before God. Calls for judgment are not confined to the Old Testament, though. I mean, in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks a, 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 a scurrilous, a scathing indictment of the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. And then for those who refuse to accept God's plan of salvation, Jesus himself says that destruction is their only end. Matthew seven thirteen to 14. I have to remember this because I, the older I get, the more merciful I want God to be and the broader I want that gate to be that leads to life. But he reminds us that it's not so. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. It's easy. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In addition to Jesus, the Apostle Paul pronounced God's judgment on a prominent opponent of the gospel. Second Timothy 2, 14 to 15, Paul wrote to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He didn't say... Maybe God will get a hold of him and he'll be saved. He needs it just like anybody else. He said, the Lord will reward him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. It's not that Paul was condemning Alexander. He was leaving that in the hands of the Lord. And by the way, as an aside, just a, a, a brief aside here, there's instruction for us in this verse. Don't go looking for trouble. 
It's going to find you. You don't need to go looking for trouble. Satan wants to destroy you. Don't make it easy for him. Paul told Timothy, stay out of his way. Don't go, don't in your boldness go, just avoid him. Immediately after Paul's warning, and this is where perspective begins to shift for us. Against Paul's warning about Alexander, he recalls how his brothers in Christ forsook him when he was arrested for the second time. An arrest that would eventually lead to his execution. And I, I think we can understand why his buddies jumped out of the way. Because Caesar could have just as easily, Nero, who knows, Paul may have been before Nero. He was certainly before a high official. Very likely Nero said, get this guy, I want him. He knew who Paul was. And how would you like to have been standing by Paul when he was arrested in that day? Not the same kind of justice that we have today uh, and, and, and liberties and rights. They might have been dragged right along with him. So it's an understand. But Paul did not call for God to discipline them. In fact, he said the exact opposite. Oh, I pray that God will not lay it to their charge. Jesus had stood with Paul and for that, He was grateful. It all boils down to perspective. I mean, there's an earthly way of looking at things, and then there's God's perspective. And frankly, many of us just don't want to hear God's perspective, especially if it includes bad news. So we let that nagging part of our conscience just, we just kind of put it aside in the same way that we don't go to the doctor about some nagging ache that we have in our body. Because if I don't go to the doctor, he won't tell me that I've got a disease, a cancer, or whatever. And and, and maybe it'll just go away. So we refuse to deal with it in the physical realm. And in the spiritual realm, we have a condition that is far more serious than any physical ailment that may plague us. Because God is holy, He cannot allow sin to dwell in His presence with favor. Habakkuk 1.13 You are of purer eyes than to see or to accept evil and you cannot look at wrong. Our sin has created an unbridgeable gulf between God and us. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to reach God. Nothing on our own. There's nothing we can do. If He doesn't do it for us, it ain't happening. And those words that we were reading earlier about slay the wicked, do this, do that. Rem- remember, we're not talking just about Hitler. We're talking about the most moral person you've ever met without Jesus. That's all of us. Without Him, we've got no hope. You, Your eyes are too holy to accept sin. Please, dear God, please don't go to heaven hoping that your good works outweigh your bad works. The good works are up here. The bad works carry all the weight. It's not our righteousness. It's only Jesus' righteousness. And that's the... That's the story that we've heard over and over and over, not only during the Trinity series, but almost every week. Jesus came, lived the perfect life. So consequently, He was the perfect substitute. I can't die for you, you can't die for me. 
But he could because he never sinned. And he took God's righteous judgment upon himself so that all who believe might have eternal life. Do you believe that eternal life comes only through repentance of sins and belief in Jesus? Do you also believe that eternal judgment awaits those that don't know Jesus? It's easier sometimes just not to think about the eternal implications uh, of this faith that we have. You know, that, that if others don't believe they don't go. And in fact, not only do they not go, but they are eternally condemned, Jesus said, in hell forever. Some 16 times Jesus talked about hell. He said God loves you only once in John 3.16. Now, the love of God is, is, is all through Scripture. But I'm telling you, His emphasis was, this is a place you don't want to go. So follow me. In precatory passages or scripture, other scriptures in which curses are called down on the evil, help us to remember that God is a holy and righteous God and sin must be. Not should be, not might be. It must be judged. Either Jesus took it for us or we face it when we stand before God. Now, if the passages that highlight God's justice and anger with sin are difficult for you, Perhaps it's because you've never fully grasped who He is and who we are outside of Him. His righteousness, our sin, all that these truths imply. Our understanding about these areas, as our understanding about these areas increases, so should our burden for those who don't know Jesus. You, you can see that the Apostle Paul had full awareness of the eternal stakes and power for all of us. And his burden was so great that he said, I'm, I'm willing to go to hell for eternity if only my, my Jewish brothers and sisters could, could live with God in heaven. Romans 9, 1-3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Jesus Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He, he meant it. I've never been there. Maybe you have. I, I don't think that I've ever been in that place where I cared so deeply that I would, that I would say, I'll spend eternity in hell if you would allow. And of course, I know it couldn't be anyway. But what if it could be? I mean, Paul meant it with every fiber of his being. As he stated, his perspective was directed by the Holy Spirit. His kinsmen, according to the flesh or the Jews, were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him. And he said, you know what? I would gladly take eternal punishment if they would know the truth and if they would live forever with Jesus. You ever been, you ever had that kind of a burden? Oh, that God would increase our burden for those around us that don't know Jesus. We need this perspective, which though it's a limited one, is godly. There will come a day, though, when we are in heaven and we have been made perfect. We have no more sin in our lives ever again. That we'll have a different perspective. When we're in heaven... Our perspective will be the same as God's. 
The martyrs in Revelation 6.10 cry out and ask, How long, O God, before you judge those who killed us and avenge our blood? How long? That's quite a different perspective than Paul shared in Romans 9 and Romans 12, where we're told to bless those who persecute and curse us. Indeed, the attitude of the 24 elders who fall on their faces and worship God when He judges sinners is prevalent in heaven. It's all you see in Revelation. It's all you see in heaven. This, this is everybody's attitude. We give thanks to you in Revelation 11, 17 to 18. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Psalm 2, I almost did Psalm 2 this you're talking about imprecatory I, for, for this particular message. God sits in the heaven and he laughs, he mocks, he holds those in derision who come against him. That's tough for us to read in our day of let's all just, can't we just all get along? And, and that's, it probably doesn't sound like it. That's my desire. That's my heart. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We'll see it differently one day. Our hearts break for those that we love that don't know Jesus right now. One day we'll be calling for God's wrath to be poured out on all who don't follow Jesus because we'll have a perfect perspective. And we've come full circle back to the psalmist's cry for justice in Psalm 10. The imprecatory psalms, these other passages that call for judgment on evil men and women, are a reminder to us, first of all, of God's holiness. They're a reminder that there's far more to life than the issues of the moment. It's far greater than what we see right in front of us. They're a call for us to share the gospel with men and women who are not Christ followers. Not harshly. Not in condemnation. And that's one of the things I want to get across. This kind of talk from Scripture is coming from God. It can't come from us. It's coming from God. And we need to say, Oh, oh, please, can't you see? This is a righteous and a holy God. And you've got nothing to offer when you stand before Him, but Jesus has done everything for you. And He's offered to you right now. Just believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Well, it would be um, uh, shocking to me, I suppose, if I discovered that every single person in this room knows Jesus as his or her Savior. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there is a very strong possibility that that this message didn't sit well with you, that it just some way sort of makes you angry. It's... It, it's what I believe to be God's Word, God's truth. And it's a warning that we don't hear very often these days. How many times have we look back and say, thank you for warning me, I didn't want to hear it, but I'm so glad you did.
Or how many times do we wish we had heeded someone's warning about a circumstance in our life? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, would you just tell him, confess that you're a sinner and that you're as wicked as he says you are. You may be very moral. I'm not making a judgment about that. I'm just saying our condition, we're born with that condition. Little Aaliyah, one week old today, my little granddaughter is a sinner and she needs Jesus. She can understand she needs Jesus. Would you say, I'm a sinner, God. Please forgive me. I repent of my sins. I I turn my life over to you. And I believe that Jesus died for me. Would you do that? And in that moment, you are transferred according to Scripture from darkness to light. And if you are this morning a believer, still the message may not have set well with you, but it's God's truth. Would you ask Him to give you a heart that understands the need of the hour, the need of the people all around you? Father, um, we don't like to think of you as an angry God. Lord, it helps to realize that your anger is just and righteous. It's not like our anger, which is so often out of the banks of the river before we know it. Tinged with emotion and, and weaknesses and sin. It's a perfect and holy, righteous, it's a legal anger. And so, Father, thank you for not only being just, but the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. You made a way that we might not only avoid judgment, but have incredible life with you. And we need to tell that message. And Lord, in our actions, our words, our prayers, may we share Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.